Welcome to Movie Maker. I'm Tim Malloy, and today we're talking to one of my favorite cinematographers, Stephen Holleran, who, as we're about to hear, went from making surf videos as a teenager in Oceanside, California, to shooting films like the brand new Sympathy for the Devil, starring Nicolas Cage and Joel Kinnaman. If you haven't seen the trailer for Sympathy for the Devil, watch it. It has a gorgeous update on what's sometimes called bisexual lighting, though, as you will hear, Stephen Halloran came at it from a different way. He also talks with us about his experience on Creed II and explains how they shoot those massive crowd fight scenes, and also talks about the very unique challenges of shooting the recent Netflix number one film, Missing, which I highly recommend, especially if you're looking for a movie to watch on a computer screen. It's the rare film that may actually benefit from being watched on a smaller screen. We also talk about two excellent projects he's developing, and we discuss a company I'm quite interested in, View Studios in Las Vegas. They're one of many companies doing very interesting and innovative things with volume screens. Those are the screens that you use to provide an immersive location or background, uh, most popularly seen in The Mandalorian. And now, without further ado, here's our awesome guest today. He's a cinematographer and more, Stephen Holleran talking sympathy for the devil. Stephen Holleran, welcome to Movie Maker. I'm very excited to talk to you about sympathy for the devil and also a couple of other things. Uh, you have a really good story in our last issue about shooting Missing, which is kind of a screen life thriller uh, that you're the cinematographer of, but you didn't necessarily shoot every scene of, as you wrote about. Uh, just to start, can you talk about how you became a cinematographer and a filmmaker in general? Because you also direct. Yeah. Hey, Tim. Uh, great to talk to you today and tell you a little bit about my backstory here. Uh, I was always into adventure as a kid. Uh, I grew up near the coast. Um, and so I would always look across the ocean and wonder what was on the other side. I would look at a mountain and see the top and wonder what it would be like to get there. And that drove this curiosity for exploration. And I happened to discover cameras in my teens and they became this apparatus for me to explore a bit of the world. And pretty soon I realized that they were a means for travel and for a bit of adventure. And, you know, if you could get a bit of cash along the way too, that would be great. And in my teens, that seemed like the coolest thing ever. And long story short, that that's how I got into this business. Did you, I mean, you're, you grew up in Oceanside, California. You still live there. Did you shoot surf videos at all? Like, what did you do when you're starting off? Yeah. Yeah. You put your, you put your finger right on it. I, I actually did start shooting surf movies. Uh, I'd hurt myself surfing and I'd had surgery on my knee. This was at like 15 or 16. And the doctor said, Hey, you're going to need to do a year of rehab. And the best thing you can do is go swimming, but you can't surf have you ever considered, you know, taking photographs of your friends? Cause he was like an amateur photographer on the side when he wasn't operating on people. And my parents had this tiny little Canon elf camera. Um, and they helped me get a waterproof housing for it. They were selling at Costco for I think like 150 bucks. And I started taking it out into the surf with my friends and, and rehabbing my knee and shooting them surfing. And I would cut them together at home. And we'd put them in the local surf shops and every so often someone would come along and, and tell me to my face, hey, you know, you got a good eye, kid, you should keep shooting. Or, or I'd hear later that somebody liked the edit 
and you know there was a bit of kudos there and i thought oh maybe this is something i could continue doing it was the one thing i was getting a bit of praise for and that that jump started me into documentary filmmaking at a really early age do you have any advice for people who are shooting on water because that's one of the more challenging things yeah be a good swimmer <laughs> uh you know know, know the ocean well uh, you you it takes a whole different level of, of maintaining equipment. Um, it teaches you how to be in the right place at the right time because the ocean's always moving. And that was one thing I learned from it. And I, I think would be good for people who are going to shoot in the ocean is, is to think early on about situational awareness um, and where to, where to place yourself to get the best shot and how to get there. It's all about timing. So what was your first professional job and how did you get there? Yeah, so I'd say the first professional job was a fellowship that I won when I graduated college. And this fellowship provided 50 grants to 50 graduating college seniors. And it was a competition. So you submitted a proposal of of how you would spend this grant money for an entire year around a specific project that you would pursue internationally. And you competed at the college level and then you competed nationally to, for this fellowship. And I proposed uh, an environmental documentary that would look at overfishing in the South Pacific and the impacts of it on local subsistence fishermen. I was a big ocean person. The environment played really big in my childhood. Um, and this seemed like the, a good fit for me uh, when I was applying. And I won a fellowship. And so they gave me, you know, a small amount of money, but enough money to survive for a year abroad. And they said, you know, the only rule for you, Stephen, is you can't come back for a year or you forfeit the money and go and pursue this project and come back with film. So I went out and I went to New Zealand wow. and visited uh Maori fishermen and local, you know, subsistence farmer, fishing farmers. Uh, I lived in Samoa with spear fishermen on the south coast of Upalu in western Samoa. And I did the same in Chile. And I cut my teeth making this run and gun on the ground single cam documentary, just me, myself, and a camera. And came back with that. And, and that kind of was the jumpstart for pursuing film as a serious profession. Was this a huge grant or were you just able to live really cheaply? Uh, I w it was enough for a year, but you had to be smart with how you spent the money. So I would, like when I lived in Samoa, I lived with in this little village and I lived in one of their huts. I, I, I got off a bus my third day on the island. And I happened to have seen a map in the main city with a fishing symbol on it. This was before internet like strong internet and internet with tons of information. So it wasn't as easy to, to know where to go. And so I just got on a bus that took me to this small town called Saliapanga. And I got off the bus at a beautiful beach and some of the villagers walked over and said, Hey, no one like you comes around here often. What are you doing here? And I said, Hey, you know, I'm here to make a movie about fishing and surf a little bit. And they offered me up a hut and I ended up becoming a really close friend of the family amazing oh my god and i should say um you're a white guy with like red hair or blonde yes. 
Like you would stand yeah, out. It could skew. It can skew either way, but yeah, it would definitely stand out in a place like Samoa. I was the only Palangi, as they they called the uh, white boys like me, um, and, and that, you know, that was the beginning of like a really great uh, friendship with this with this family and this community. That's awesome. Uh, one thing I've noticed looking over your career is that you seem to like a challenge. You seem to like a really difficult technical thing to do. And one of the first things that stands out, and I'm sure there's others, so feel free to interject with others. Um, but a boy, a girl, a dream is a wonner and also a not especially high budget wonner. Um, a wonner being a film that you shoot continuously about for about in one shot. And I don't think you cheated it at all. Um, but can you talk about just how you did that and what the challenges were and what attracted you to that project? Yeah, so Boy, A Girl, A Dream was my second movie and I had taken a meeting with the director uh, right after the presidential election in 2016. And, you know, he had a lot of things to say about that election and you know, the state of the country and he wanted to do a movie, but he didn't have a lot of money. And he, he pitched me this this love story that unfolds the night of the presidential election on Sunset Boulevard. And we talked about different ways to shoot it and how to give it this like out-of-body dreamlike quality. And I pitched the idea of doing it as a wonder. And I I also pitched as it as a stabilized film, which required a lot more technology to to pull this off. And that was all tied into the feelings that he wanted to communicate. Uh, and then afterwards we we realized how difficult the challenge was going to be, but we were also really invigorated by the idea. I think partially because both of us were athletes. We like hard things that, that challenge us mentally and physically. And that was a huge physical challenge. That was a, you know, that was a ballet with a camera and two actors uh, on a, on Sunset Boulevard in one night. So we did two takes of the movie. We only shot it twice. We had never rehearsed it. All we'd done is walk through the locations and lit the locations we were going to. Uh, and then we basically set off like it was a like a live play on the street. Um, and it was totally experimental. We often we would be halfway through through the film and something would go wrong, and we would just be whispering at the actors to keep going. And like I was trying to find shots within this moving wonder that I was doing with this huge stabilized rig that I was wearing. Um and when we were done, we didn't know how, how long the movie was. Uh, we didn't know if anything would ever come of it, to be honest, because it was so out, out of left field and so experimental. Uh, then it ended up going to, to Sundance and getting a decent amount of attention. And uh, it, it really sparked in me a, a new love for technology and, and pushing the envelope with, with the visuals and just doing something I hadn't seen before. And I think that's always something that, sparks my curiosity with the project. So the documentary background must have really helped you there to be able to just keep rolling and having no control. Did you, I mean, did you have any control over the crowds? I mean, did you have anybody saying, please don't go over there? They're trying to shoot a movie. We had some PAs that were on set uh, that were trying to help. The problem is we didn't own most of the street locations. So we we're just shooting them live. Yeah. And I was, shooting in a 360 style. So I'd constantly be moving around our two actors. So there was never a safe part of set. So more often than not, most of the crew, including the PAs were just running away from my camera and trying to hide behind bushes and cars as I would spin in the world while I was rolling. I would, we would just be waving at people to move. 
so I had this big long tail of, of people behind me as, as we shot this movie. I have some pictures of it. It's pretty funny. Is it really one take or other spots like in rope where you can cut as you go behind a tree or something? No, it's one. <laughs> I you mentioned a knee injury. I have a I got a pretty bad knee injury on Sunset Boulevard just jogging there. Um, because there's so many people you don't expect to pop out and I like moved suddenly in meniscus tear. Um I can't imagine having a rig on and trying to shoot anything there. That, that's just that's stupendous. It was it was very difficult. I, I definitely had to pull on the documentary background of finding shots, making shots. Uh, and then the physicality of it was definitely something that that was difficult, but I, you know, with my sporting background, I was able to to think of it as a game and that helped. That helped a lot. I love that. Another huge challenge. And again, feel free to interject if I'm forgetting some, but another gigantic challenge is the one that you wrote about for Movie Maker, Making Missing, which if people don't know, a screenplay is concentrated entirely in one shot of a screen. Um, and you can use the things that pop up on that screen, like, you know, incoming phone calls or things like that. But the rule is pretty much keep it to screens. Um, and to shoot that, you had to take your actors, including Storm Reed, the lead, and have them hold the camera a lot. Because a lot of times the camera was a phone or a watch or something like that. Can you talk about just the mechanics of that and coaching people through it? Yeah, so the, the screen life thriller, as you said, takes place all from the perspective of cell phones, laptops, security cameras, anything that would live on a on a computer screen. Uh, and so you don't have a traditional camera operator often operating those cameras. Those cameras live in in world, and they, they need to feel true to life. And so if it's someone talking into a cell phone, they need to be able to hold the camera that's recording them, that's pretending to be a cell phone. So I was handing. I was handing off camera rigs to actors and having them shoot themselves and they were watching themselves as they acted on a monitor often that was either the laptop they were holding or the cell phone rig that we created for them would have a monitor as well. And that was a multi-pronged challenge because, you know, I had to coach the actors into where to stand, how to hold the camera, uh, where they looked best in, in the light. Uh, how to how to give the camera an authentic feeling because uh, all of that is what goes into camera operating for instance um, and then also they had to look at themselves and actors aren't generally accustomed to seeing themselves in real time as they're acting you know they're used to acting off someone else and getting that that kind of like human real-time feedback but watching yourself in a monitor and performing to someone who isn't there all the time is a huge challenge very disconcerting uh, and can spark a lot of insecurity on set. And that was something that I that I hadn't quite thought about until the until early on in the movie and I started handing handing these cameras off to to the actors and I would just see their expressions. Mm. And, and I realized how much extra it required from them. Uh, and so a lot of my job then became making them comfortable, getting them used to the cameras, getting them used to the lighting, explain them why the lighting was the way it was, why they had to look the way they did uh, for the story which is out somewhat outside the traditional wheelhouse of a cinematographer and, and leans more into, into this directing space, but also like this acting coach in a way uh, and a camera coach. So it was a, 
combination of a lot of interesting uh, job roles to pull that movie off. Incredibly cool. Uh, and it's like such a, it sounds like it could be boring. If people haven't seen a screen life, it sounds like it might be boring to see a movie that takes place on the screen. Not boring at all. Absolutely captivating. You're trying to solve a mystery as you go. You also had a unit in Columbia. So it has like a very big world in it. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of good, like, you know, regular kidnapping type drama stuff going on. Um, it doesn't feel small in any way. It's like a very big, expansive, cool, crackling thriller. Um, so yeah, I, I loved it. I didn't think once about how you pulled this off as I was watching it, which is like the highest compliment I can give. It just felt mm -hmm. like I was actually watching it happen on a screen, which I love. Um, so yeah, you want to be invisible for a movie like that. Uh, as a cinematographer, you, you don't want anyone to think anybody shot it at all. There's, yeah. you know, there's no, there's no human touch to to any of the material you see in that movie. That's that's the feeling you want to get across. And you know, sounds sounds like it works for you, which is great. I I love that movie, and I love the one that came before it too. Searching, um, mm. okay. I mean, Searching has that like it was the first screen life I'd ever seen, so it had like a novel factor. But I think as a movie, I actually like missing more. Um, just beautifully done in no small part because of you. Um, Thank you. <laughs> Which brings us to the new one, uh, Sympathy for the Devil. I mean, this isn't the biggest movie you've worked on, I don't think, but it seems like, I mean, because you did Creed 2, which is obviously huge. Um, but this one does so much cool stuff. My favorite part of it, besides Nicolas Cage, um, who's my favorite part <laughs> of any movie he's in, <laughs> is just the awesome look of it and a totally new take on Vegas. I think people think of Vegas as neon, but you seem to go with what I've heard called bisexual lighting. Does that mean anything to you? I've actually never heard that. So I'd love I'd love to hear what it means. Oh, okay. Um, well, I learned about it about two years ago at a festival called Film Quest. We were talking to a... a oh, yeah a guy named Colin Cooper, who's a fantastic director, and we're actually making a short with him. And it's a queer giallo horror movie. Um, and the idea of bisexual lighting is that, that kind of, people are gonna like write in and say, I have this all wrong, but it's basically not like male skewing or female skewing. It's kind of like a lot of purples and violets and lavenders, mm -hmm. sort of a nice in-between. Um, and I feel like there's a lot of that in Sympathy for the Devil. Can you just talk about like the lighting scheme and what the intent of it was? Yeah, so there's this conflict of good and evil and, and truth and fiction and that interplays between these two characters. You don't, you don't know where either of them stand for most of the movie. And so I, I fell in love with this idea of communicating that uh, unknown and the gray that, that lives between, uh, say, right and wrong or good and evil uh, with color. I thought, okay, well, if you you know you have your traditional red as evil, and and it's also stop for driving, and this is a car movie, and you have green uh, for for good and go. Traditionally, uh, I thought, okay, well, what what about all the colors in the middle? Let's let's turn this into like a let's give this like a kaleidoscope feeling, and that's where purples and magentas and fuchsias and blues and other colors came into being. And uh, I thought about bringing them into the car, particularly towards the end of the car, or end of the car sequence, the driving sequence of the movie, yeah. just to heighten that feeling of of unknowingness and and questioning 
questioning the truth. And I thought the, the interplay of all these colors could, could set you out of body that as a viewer, uh, and be a bit different, you know, you hadn't seen that in, in a lot of car movies and, you know, the colors were, were pulled from neon signs that I, that I liked in Vegas that I then put my own twist on and made them a bit grungier and, and darker. Mm. That's, that's the bisexual lighting. That's how I got there. That's so cool. What was the biggest challenge on this one? Because it's largely in a car and yet it's still totally gripping. I mean, I think the it's, first 30 minutes, there's not that many locations or anything like that. It's largely like a parking lot in cars and you're still totally hooked in. You know, the biggest challenge in the movie is the, the car. The, that set is always challenging to shoot you know whether you're doing it on a trailer uh, or you're doing it on a stage it's it's a big challenge and a big conceit if you're doing it for 40 50 minutes of a movie like we were we knew it had to be authentic we knew it had to be interesting we knew it, it had to play strongly enough that uh, the audience wouldn't fall out of watching these two actors go, talk to each other in a car because it could get really slow quick um and the visuals can could get dull, just the nature of, of car work, particularly car work at night outside Vegas, because the route these two guys take starts in the city, but then it heads out into the middle of nowhere. And so I was faced with this conundrum of seeing them driving in pitch black based on the route that we had picked and pitch black for quite a while. And that's not going to work. Um, so that was a big challenge. And then the other part of it was we were shooting it on an LED volume. So a big LED wall, which is new state-of-the-art tech that's been coming into Hollywood for a fair bit now, but it hadn't been done. Well, at least from what I know, this was the first movie done at this volume in Vegas. So it was their first movie. It was our first time all working together. Um, and I'm not sure how many car movies had been done on volume, at least for this length of, of runtime. So we're in uh, uncharted territory and that, took all of all of my bandwidth and time for the majority of the movie, even though we had other things to shoot. Uh, I was always testing uh, or thinking about how to make the volume work for the reasons that I pointed out. Is that company called View? Yeah, and they have a they have a number of studios, I believe, across the country. They had just opened this one in Vegas. F great facility, fantastic people who are, who are thrilled to jump in and try to make this movie work it's just none of us had done it together so it was a real learning process for the whole team yeah another compliment i didn't realize this was a volume screen oh no, really not good yeah i mean sometimes you can tell i mean mandalorian you can sometimes tell because they're in space and that background doesn't really exist but this one i just assumed you were actually out like with a camera attached to the car um, oh no oh good well i tricked you that was the goal that was the goal uh no the majority of it is in a volume uh, with on a stage with two cameras we shot all of the night dialogue driving in five days and then we had uh, a splinter day or two where we shot exteriors uh, of the car driving on the road so you could see the wheels spinning because you can never show wheel spinning on a volume obviously and that was it that was it. And the rest are all little location sheets that we did punctured in along the way. Were there other things you did to make that car feel like it was moving and like to really feel the propulsive 
force of it. I mean, at one point, I'm not going to give anything away, but there are moments when it feels very much like you're in a fast moving car and like it would not be good to uh, fall out of this car. Yeah, so a lot of that is the plate capture. We we went to great lengths to capture our own plates, to capture good, high quality, low light plates on the exact route that we picked out in the real world that we were going to go shoot as practical locations as well. Um, that was a big deal. Then getting the right kind of reflections, moving along the car at the right speed with the right colors that would match the world around it, that was huge. You. If you're going to shoot outside of a car in particular on a volume, you need great reflections. That's, that's one of the biggest selling points for speed. It tricks the eye. And so that was a huge component. And then we added in some camera shake on set practically, just having camera operators shake the cameras to give them a bit of a rattle because you would get that also if you have cameras attached to a car and it helps sell the, the idea that this car is moving. So and some some of that's like just simple, like really practical, basic basic stuff. But all you put it all together, and you you can get a result sometimes that looks really good. And the plates are the backgrounds that are moving across the volume screen that's behind the car, and the reflections. Correct. Are you projecting the reflections? How do you get the reflections? So you get some reflections off off the volume wall. So the background. Uh, wall has a number of plates, so you'll get some reflections off that. You have a top led wall which hangs over the stage they basically put the sky in uh, whatever you recorded as the sky from your plate capture for us it was street lights we, we shot an angled shot from the roof of a capture car and shot all these different types of overhead lights going by so those provided some reflections but we needed a lot more so we used all kinds of different led uh, sized led tubes mapped in chase patterns into them and hung those over the top of the car uh, at the right points so for each shot i i could get the like strong reflections where i wanted them and that's that's how we did that are these lead actors i have like my opinions of both actors and how i perceive them to be um are they like give me 50 takes guys or are they like let's get this over with quickly like clint eastwood style I would say they they were both fast workers. <clears throat> I think they were primed for most of their scenes from the first take. I never felt like they were necessarily finding it on the first take. Uh, we would do a number of takes, but it was mostly just for different performance iterations that either they or their director were interested in doing. Yeah. Um, never felt like they were rushing to get anything done. Never felt like they needed a thousand takes either. Um, they, they brought the heat from take one every day, which was fantastic yeah. uh, to see them be able to do that with each other and, and like a, a challenging film, you know, it relies on the two of them almost all the way through, kind of like a boy, girl, a dream in that way. It's another two-hander where these two actors are on camera the entire movie. It's a, yeah. it's a tall order for, for an actor, but also a huge opportunity as well. Yeah, it works really well. Um, I mean, because Cage is Cage, but then Kinnaman has this yes. like, very cool, like, like sort of menace all the time. Like, you think he's capable of blowing up at any time, but he has to keep it. He's like a young dad in this one and is a very, you know, sympathetic guy. I mean, the movie is about him getting getting carjacked by Nicolas Cage at the very beginning. Um, 
it's a fun movie. I recommend it. Um, I want to just ask about Creed too, like shooting a movie of that size and then get into your, your directing. Um, but how was Creed two different from the other stuff you worked on? Yeah, so Creed two, I was the second unit cinematographer. Mm -hmm. So I was working with uh, Kramer, Morgenthau, and my my good friend, the director, Stephen Cable Jr., who he and I did our first movie together called The Land, which is how this whole cinematography career really got kicked off into action. And so oh. he was directing Creed 2. Well, how did that happen? Uh, the Land? Yeah. Uh, so you know, backtrack a little bit and tell you, Stephen Cable and I were going to school together. At USC, we were getting our master's. This was post post fellowship after I'd come back from Samoa and Chile and then come back with that documentary. I'd applied to grad school and had gotten in. And, uh, we were we became fast friends. We had like-minded tastes, and he was writing a short film at the time about some skateboarders from the rough side of town set in his hometown of Cleveland. And I was a skateboarder and I was a surfer and we're like, we got to shoot this, this movie. So we went and shot the short in LA, like a tone piece, running around, stealing shots on the Metro and, and all over exposition in downtown for a couple nights, just with some change in our pockets, sleeping on, you know, on his couch. And that movie ended up getting financed as a feature. We got a million dollars. And so we went out to his hometown of Cleveland and we shot this bootstrap indie. Same same kind of story about four kids from the rough side of town, skater kids. Um, and that movie went to Sundance and had a ton of like interesting people involved in the project and you know, basically gave the two of us a career. And so we reunited again on Creed 2. Uh, I did second unit work on that film. Uh, and that was a lot of, uh, that was a lot of like boxing action. So I, I went to, like, for instance, I went to Wales and I, and I shot a live boxing event with a large crew with, with three cameras actually ended up directing that whole section as well. Um, we did tons of plate capture. So all the, interestingly enough, plates, again, most of the fighting sequences, the, the boxing sequences in Creed are on a stage with different boxing arenas built on the stage and the plates would get captured separately from real live boxing events around the world. And then those plates would get brought into the volume. Uh, oh my God. All right, you if just I remember it correctly, yeah, that, yeah, that's that's how it, how it was done. So the fights in Creed, there's not an actual audience watching that. I always wondered how they pulled that off. That's volume? Yeah. So like the last, the last sequence, fight sequence the big one for instance uh i shot all the plates for that in wales i shot all the b-roll for that in at a real boxing event in wales with a separate crew and then they built a stage and utilized the plates to build out that world i'm sure there's extras as well and, and some grand stands that were built in to the to the set but yeah most of it's visual effects incredibly cool and when you say plates i mean that's just the shots that are in the background on the volume um correct and the way we did that is we we had a, a visual effects team with us and we shot 360 degree view of the arena from the center of the of the boxing arena and we would direct the crowd for different reactions and this was before the prime time fight 
And so we had like 15, 20 minutes to do that. And that's what made the background for the movie. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen the SNL sketch where they're they're doing like a basketball basketball game where there's two extras who are just very extra extras and are running way over the top and don't look at all <laughs> like real basketball players. But it's just like that's I guess that's over now. I mean, you have your plates, you know what the background actors are gonna do, and you're good. Yeah, I mean, it, it works in a lot of situations. I, I wouldn't say it always works, but sometimes it's it's the way to to go about doing things. Because uh, to fill up an arena the, the size of the one we shot in Wales was eighty at least 80,000 people. And that is a, a monumental task for a film. Even to do a small section of that, you know, 500 extras is a lot. So yeah, it's, it, it's the way of the game a lot of, a lot of times these days. So tell me about your filmmaking. I mean, you've directed three films, I believe. Yeah. So I started out as a just as a cameraman and a storyteller. Yeah. The camera is just a way to tell stories. And so I've always had a sense for for narrative and, and for documentary and, and for finding great stories. And I think that's ultimately my true love with this whole career is is the storytelling aspect of it. And cinematography plays a huge part of that. Um so I've I've directed a number of shorts over the years, uh, whether they've been you know school projects or documentaries. Like my first film that I did in Samoa, I I did a launch film for Canon a few years ago uh, that was a ballet piece that was set on the wing of an abandoned seven forty seven, which was which is this cool idea I've had since I was a kid uh, to bring a ballet and and plane flight together, and. Then most recently, I directed a number of episodes on uh, HBO Max's The Climb, which was an adventure climbing competition series set in Spain and Jordan. Yeah. Um, and that's that's been leading to more directing opportunities, particularly in the premium doc space and also eventually in, in the narrative world. So it's, it's, uh, it's been fun to have my toe in all these different arenas and to keep it street level and on the ground with documentary work, but also play with my imagination uh, on these narrative films. It's it's been a wonderful uh, learning experience. Yeah, is there an ultimate sort of big you know white whale thing that you really want to do that you haven't gotten to do yet because you've done a lot? Yeah, so I actually I I've written a number of projects but one in particular that's near and dear to my heart is uh they is a tv series called fire camp that's based around my time working with female felons on the front lines of california wildfires for a netflix docuseries i did in 2016 which is a whole other wild project i was involved in uh, so we were embedded with a hand crew from one of the uh, felon uh, female felon facilities that rehabilitates felons by working them on fire lines in return for uh, time off their sentence. And I, I got to see up close and personal, like what these girls have to go through and how it changes them as people and the heroic work they do while they're in prison. And so I crafted a TV show around that uh, very like band of brothers uh, kind of feeling kind of show. Um, and that would be a, a project that I'd love to get going. Uh, one of many, but but that one's a quite strong. It's, it's 
done incredibly well in script writing competitions and trying to put it together and get it into the world. Um, and I think it's another kind of film that would pull on my documentary experience, but also this all this new plate technology, LED volume technology, how do you do a lot with fires in a place like that? So that's one top of my list to do. I have some adventure films. I have a you know period piece uh, adventure film set around in the surf exploration era of the 1960s uh, in a conflict zone in Indonesia. Uh, you know, loosely connected to a number of number of stories of great surf explorers. It's an era of of exploration that hasn't been done yet. That I think would make a fabulous uh, film. You know, think something Apocalypse Now meets the Endless Summer kind of kind of movie. Oh my um, God. So wait, surf exploration is like going to for the surfers new lands and finding new places to surf. Correct. So there was an era of, of pioneering new waves and it still happens a little bit today, but you know, a lot of the coastline has been discovered, but back in the, you know, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, a lot of the world was unknown in terms of coastline and whether waves were great waves, perfect wave was out there. And so it inspired this, this hunt for these like mystical Shangri-Las, like these perfect waves that would deliver surfers their, their dream wave like a like literally like euphoria and lots of young men and women chased this idea all around the world into incredibly difficult living conditions often to their death uh, to find these waves uh, and i've got a project built around that that i'd love to get going as well so those are those are on the docket fire in the water 